from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 3. WizKids on one eventful evening at one of the large game sessions, Richard showed up with his first computer and a little program he was working on. We were at another friend's house that eve. It was a bit of what would eventually become a Calabeth, Robert White. I had seen an early low-resolution graphics game called Escape. It was a simple maze game, but it inspired me to figure out how 3D graphics worked. I spent that summer working on high-resolution 3D graphics and adapting them to yet another version of my little role-playing game, and wrote what was never intended to be published, A Calabeth. Richard Garriott, The Official Book of Ultima by Shay Adams. In June of 1979, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak's company launched the first revision of its workhorse personal computer to the market, the Apple II Plus. While fully compatible with the previous Apple, the basic version of the Apple II Plus was sold with 48K of RAM compared to the mere 4K in previous models, thanks to a sharp drop in the cost of components. Apple had run into problems with the FCC for the electromagnetic emissions of the basic model, and would even have been forced to withdraw the paddles that were bundled with the Apple II from the market within a few months. The Plus version was designed with a special plastic case inside, which contained a brass mesh to shield the equipment and keep electromagnetic emissions low. But the real novelty of the Plus was the inclusion of AppleSoft, the basic dialect created by Microsoft for Apple, hence the compound name, directly in the ROM. Already available in 1977 as a paid expansion, AppleSoft was more powerful and well-equipped with mathematical capabilities that Wozniak's integer basic lacked. This made it easier to create financial and scientific applications, more powerful and with more functionality, but at the same time considerably slower than integer basic. AppleSoft ended up definitively replacing the Wozniak dialect after the launch of the 2 Plus. Like its predecessor, Apple II Plus could not display lowercase characters and therefore did not have a key to switch from upper to lowercase, but was equipped with a repeat key, used to make up for the inability of the keyboard to repeat the same character several times when a key remained pressed. Users who needed lowercase characters had to resort to special expansions or switch to the much slower high-resolution mode. This shortcoming was advantageous to their most direct competitor, Commodore's pet, especially in school and office environments, resulting in a curious consequence. Richard and other programmers had to write the texts of their first programs using capital letters only. Having a microcomputer all for himself was a turning point for Richard. The system allowed him to view and modify code in real time, save it on tape instead of punch cards, as well as run the program and immediately notice its output without waiting due to the time-sharing and slow process of printing results on paper. The Apple II also had remarkable graphical capabilities, including being able to show colors, something Garriott did not initially take advantage of. In fact, the Apple II had remarkable graphical capabilities for the period, and was the only one out of the trio of computers discussed in the last episode released at the same time that was not monochrome. Richard's latest prototype game at this time, D&D 28, which had been developed at Clear Creek High School's labs, was designed for available outputs at the time, teletype printing. 
His first venture was to simply port D&D 28 from the mini-computer to the Apple II. This was an essential operation which did not exploit in any way the true potential of the microcomputer, apart from displaying on the monitor what had previously been printed on paper. It also allowed him to save his code on a floppy disk instead of undergoing the painstaking process of writing it on paper and punching it into paper rolls. But owning an Apple II Plus not only freed him from depending on the school's computer systems, providing him with a much more powerful and personal tool, it also gave him the chance to experience some of the games that had begun to spread quickly among students with the exchange of floppy disks. One of the most significant games for the young programmer was undoubtedly Escape by Silas S. Warner, a little-known American programmer whose games were published by a small but very popular North American software house, M-U-S-E, that is Muse, software. Silas Sayers Warner is one of the most interesting and least known characters in the history of video games. A skilled programmer who discovered his innate talent for computer science accidentally and found employment as a computer technician at the University of Indiana in the early 1970s. In this position, Warner contributed to the creation of a network of terminals for the PLATO, that stands for Programmed Logic for Automatic Teaching Operations, system, a didactic software that allowed students to create multi-user lessons using the Tutor programming language. Based on a platform from Control Data Corporation, one of the most important companies in the mainframe market at the time and in the business of selling timesharing services, the Play-Doh system underwent a rapid development. With the release of its fourth version, powerful graphical capabilities were implemented, a prerequisite for people to consider when using the new technology to create a game. Another of the first student developers was John Dulesky from the University of Iowa, who, in order to have the necessary resources, called Lesson Spaces, a name that clearly indicated the didactic design of the Play-Doh system, asked Silas Warner for help. The resulting game was Empire, released in 1973, the first multiplayer arena shooter in the history of video games, and the source of a massive drop in student performance, and also of Play-Doh system performance, overloaded as it was with countless game sessions. Silas liked Empire so much that he asked and obtained permission from Dulesky to create a derivative game, more tactical and reflective in nature, which he called Conquest. But this was only the beginning of his career as a game creator. With the release of the Trinity Computers, Ed Zarin, an acquaintance of Warner, decided to buy an Apple II, which he let his friend use. On the evening of the same day as the purchase, Silas paid Ed a surprise visit, sat down in front of the microcomputer, and started programming. By one o'clock in the morning, his first Apple II game was ready. The name was Apple Tree, and the aim of the game was to collect apples that fell from a tree. It was little more than an experiment, but the experience was so striking for Silas that the next day, he enthusiastically went to buy an Apple II as well, which had the serial number 234. Ed Zarin took his friend's passion for computer science very seriously and decided to found a software house to sell programs for the Apple II. He called it Muse Software and started personally developing a fighting video game called Tank War. Given Silas's skill, Ed convinced him to write games that the small company would sell. And they started doing serious business, also adding Jim Black, a newcomer. Silas had a natural talent for programming, and one of his first experiments was Maze, a game with rudimentary 3D graphics. The object of the game was to get out of a procedurally generated maze, with the ability to use a map, a compass, or by leaving footprints. All of the options were disabled at the start of the game. Advanced and innovative, Maze was more of a technical test, 
for a much more ambitious project. Immediately after Maze's publication, Silas developed Escape, another much more complex and interesting game in which the maze was randomly generated at the beginning and inhabited by guards who obstructed the passage, asking the player for a pass, and other non-player characters who could give information, sometimes correct, sometimes wrong, or give the player a pass, a compass, or, with a pinch of luck, the map. As with Empire, Escape was responsible for a drastic drop in productivity in any laboratory where a copy of it arrived. Even at Steve Jobs' company headquarters, Escape did not take any prisoners when David Gordon, an Apple employee at the time, introduced it to his colleagues. The mania spread, and soon a large number of staff found themselves engaged in solving puzzles and crafting maps of the labyrinth rather than doing any actual work. Apple lost about 60 weeks of productivity due to this jewel of Muse softwares. Silas Warner's programming career did not end with Escape, however. It continued with Robot War, released in 1981, a fighting game in which the player used a programming language and had 256 lines of code to program a robot and then observe it fighting in an arena with three other automatons. Next were Castle Wolfenstein, released in 1981, and Beyond Castle Wolfenstein, released in 1984, two of the first stealth games in history, as well as the innovative program The Voice, released in 1983, one of the first pieces of software capable of capturing the human voice and reproducing it with the rudimentary audio system of the Apple II. We will hear more about these very skilled programmers and their creations later. Richard, like many other players before him, found himself trapped in the narrow corridors of the labyrinths of escape. Forced to solve puzzles, craft maps, and draw logical schemes to understand if passersby had lied or told the truth. This experience profoundly changed his instinctive way of creating games, until then influenced only by his experience with Mayfield's Star Trek and the long role-playing sessions in which, sitting at a table with his friends, he had used pen and paper to draw the world from above, and his imagination to visualize it in his mind. Escape had shown him a different way to play and visualize the world using a computer. The latest version of his D&D game had used ASCII characters to represent monsters and objects from above. After experimenting with Escape, Richard decided to completely overhaul the graphical representation of his game. The ability to draw objects and monsters in a first-person view rather than representing them with symbols such as asterisks, brackets, and percentages, made possible by Apple II's innovative hardware, was an opportunity he had to exploit. In order to draw corridors, forks, and objects in perspective, Richard had to master instruments he had not used up until then. The first person to help him was his mother Helen, who taught him the techniques of representation and perspective. Without proper help in math, however, Richard couldn't have created the routines needed for his Apple II to draw a maze like Warner had done in Escape. Once again, his father Owen came to the rescue, and helped lay down the necessary trigonometric foundation in Richard's mind. Drawing the contours of objects according to a wireframe model, which Richard and Robert White had already started experimenting with in 1977, he transformed his prototype once again and divided the game into two parts. When the player was moving on the surface of the world, it was represented in the usual way, with the map seen from above. But when the action moved into dungeons, the rudimentary graphics drawn with a few lines would reconstruct the basements with long corridors, doors, and monsters in a first-person view. Since this was the only novelty, the only difference from the previous version of the game, Richard decided to call the latest version D&D 28B, a simple evolution of the previous prototype. During the summer break of 1979, Richard started looking for a job, and found one at John Prosper Mayer's shop. 
The latter had been a scientist at NACA, NACA, later NASA, and had participated in the Bell 11 flight, the plane with which Colonel Chuck Yeager had broken the sound barrier, as well as several other projects such as the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. In the mid-1970s, however, NASA had begun a policy of cost reduction and encouraged senior staff to take early retirement. Understanding the scope of the ongoing computer revolution, Mayer decided to accept the challenge and to try his luck selling computers in Houston, where he expected the concentration of technology and science generated by the nearby Space Center would help to create local demand. Mayer opened a shop in the Computerland franchise chain with the help of two colleagues, Stan Mann and Kenneth Wetcher, as well as his wife, Geraldine Couch whom he met at NACA, where she had worked as a human computer, performing complex calculations with the sole aid of a Frieden electromechanical calculator. To assist him, he chose a young and talented programmer he had met at a social event hosted by the Houston Amateur Microcomputer Club, one of the first clubs for computer enthusiasts. The boy's name was Kenneth Wayne Arnold. A musician and computer enthusiast, Arnold was 20 years old, a few years older than Richard, and had made his own games, not on microcomputers like Garriott, but on a much simpler product built around one of the early microprocessors, a single-board computer sold commonly to engineers as an affordable way to learn a specific machine language. Those with the affordable MOS 6502 sold surprisingly well to hobbyists also, who could add a power supply, a terminal, and a cassette tape drive to get a full computer on the cheap. The first hardware Kenneth Arnold had occupied himself with was the Familiarizer, produced by an Oklahoma company called EBKA, a single-board computer based on the MOS 6502, like many computer kits of the time. According to Arnold, For input, the Familiarizer had a 20-key keypad, which included four control keys and 16 hexadecimal keys. For output, it had two display devices, each of which could display a single hexadecimal digit. It had a mere 1K byte of main memory and no storage memory. You keyed in your programs by hand in hexadecimal, and when the power was turned off, the program was forgotten. The machine was far too small for a high-level language. It was even too small for an assembly language. Having such a modest machine at his disposal, Arnold had to learn to program the 6502 in hexadecimal. This fact, as we will see, would be of fundamental importance. During his first year at Houston University in 1977, Arnold learned about the Houston Amateur Microcomputer Club. Hosting it was Joe Ellis, a technology enthusiast and locally known jazz musician. At the behest of Joe, Arnold was invited to show the club his first musical experiments, and the young man also involved two of his friends, James Van Ardstalen and Gary Morrison. The former was an owner of a Commodore Pet, while the latter had an Electrocomp, one of the first commercial synthesizers. The demonstration was called the Singing Computer, and even attracted the attention of the Houston Post, as well as that of Mayer, who invited Arnold to work at his store. According to Arnold, One day I arrived at work and began my day as normal, assembling computers and so on. At some point, I needed to take some empty boxes to the trash bin behind the store. When I got behind the store, I found a young man breaking down boxes. No one had told me we had a new employee, but I introduced myself. It was Richard Garriott. The two soon became friends, and Arnold was invited to D&D sessions at Garriott's home, where he met many of Richard's cohorts. On one such occasion, Garriott showed Arnold a program he had written to keep track of the progress of his D&D adventures, the Dungeon Master's Assistant. 
The two talked at length about computers and programming. Richard enjoyed programming with his Apple II in BASIC. Arnold, on the contrary, had meanwhile saved enough to buy an Apple II and had tried BASIC. However, he remained tied to the machine code of the MOS 6502. It was much more powerful and faster than any interpreted language, such as the one from Kemeny and Kurtz. As John Mayer learned about D&D 28B, he wanted to try it and was so impressed that he suggested that his employee put it up for sale. His reasoning was based on the pragmatic logic of a trader. The products he sold, mainly Apple IIs and Commodore Pets, were expensive and totally useless in the hands of a beginner. The software industry was still in its infancy, and buyers of microcomputers very often had to write software for themselves. A good game could act as a catalyst for the sales of microcomputers, and might even convince those who did not want to become programmers or to create their own software to buy an Apple II. Again, according to Arnold... One day, John P. Mayer saw Richard's game. He told Richard he wanted 200 copies to send to Computerland stores nationwide. So we went into overtime production mode, copying cassette tapes, printing manuals, and stuffing it all into plastic bags. Not being able to sell his game under the name D&D 28B, Richard had to invent something, and he fell back onto his great passion for the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. With an obviously Tolkienian inspiration, Garriott decided to call his first game a Calabeth, World of Doom. Armed with many good intentions and a pinch of naivete, Richard put friends and family to work. Keith Zabalui, a Houston neighbor who had been taking part in the D&D sessions, designed the title screen, which earned him credit for the game's graphics. Richard's mother designed the cover, and Richard himself personally copied the instructions and took care of packaging each copy of the game in plastic Ziploc bags. Each package was numbered with a small green label on the top right corner so Richard could keep count of sales. In the following weeks, between 8 and 12 packages were purchased for $19.95, while the others remained on the shelf. Garriott had barely been able to make up his costs and was preparing to leave his job at the store and move to Austin to attend university again. However, one copy came to the attention of a small publishing house called California Pacific Computer Company, CPCC. According to some accounts, it was the owner of the Computerland store who shipped one of the Ziploc bags to CPCC. During a telephone call with CPCC for a software reorder, Mayer mentioned the game he was selling on his shelves. This got the attention of someone at CPCC, and Mayer committed himself to sending them a copy of it as soon as possible. According to other versions of the story, the software was passed from hand to hand in the form of unauthorized copies until it reached California. In any case, when the game arrived in the hands of Al Remmers, the owner of CPCC, he called Richard personally to try to convince him that the game would sell very well with proper distribution. Like many computer pioneers in the late 1970s, Richard had not regarded software as a marketable product and only exchanged it with other computer enthusiasts. Remmers, however, with some business flair, understood that software could and indeed should be sold like any other product. The market was still small but growing rapidly, and Remmers was hungry for good programs because not all buyers of microcomputers were willing to learn BASIC and spend days creating their own custom programs. Richard had already come across Remmers' company with the exchange of cassettes and five and a quarter inch floppy disks in between friends and acquaintances, experiencing the first games of Bill Budge. A pioneer of microcomputers who had made a name for himself by redesigning classic games such as Pong and Breakout for the Apple II, copies of which Remmers personally distributed store to store. This says a lot about the perception of copyright in the early years of consumer computing, even among those who actually worked as programmers.
At any rate, Richard had never seriously considered becoming a game developer. D&D and programming were passions, but his life seemed to be routed another way. Completing the game was a challenge that earned him a great grade at school and a new Apple II. Self-publishing had been an adventure, though unprofitable. Seeing one's own game on the shelves of a computer store had been of great satisfaction. Now, however, Richard could take another step forward, but he needed the approval of his parents. Owen and Helen cautiously asked their son to contact CPCC about the proposal so that they could better assess the opportunity it offered. Richard didn't need to be told twice. As soon as possible, he took a plane and traveled to California where he met Al Remmers in person, who proposed a publication contract to him with generous royalties. At the request of CPCC, the manual would be rewritten to give the publication a more professional form than the sheets printed by Richard. Remmers also decided that the price would be increased by exactly $15 to $34.99. As for the author's name, which Richard had included in the title screen of the game, Remmers had an objection. There's nothing wrong with Richard Garriott, but we don't think it's helpful for marketing. But we love the name Lord British. They proposed to publish the game signed with Lord British instead of Richard's legal name or the nickname Shamino, perhaps without understanding the long-term consequences of this choice that would have given a boost to Garriott's career. Richard signed without hesitation and immediately returned to Houston. Summer's end was close and the young man was facing the imminent publication of his school experiment, he already had plans to lay the foundations for the follow-up of a Calibeth. To do so, he would ask Ken Arnold for help. The two went to work. While Richard was trying to give his game more depth, a real story, and an increase in features, Arnold, who knew how to program in assembly, took care of writing the routines to update the game's map, as well as dealing with the title graphics. It took Richard two years to get to D&D 28B, the little time available before the start of university was not enough for the two to do more than lay the foundation for their next project, which they would complete separately via working remotely. Soon, Richard had prepared his luggage to go to the University of Texas in Austin, taking with him his trusty Apple II. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash sssshpodcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.